things began to change in in the sort of most substantive sense. Things began to change in the uh, 1990s, really. I mean, in Ireland especially, um, it came about mainly through the emergence of women's liberation movements in in the 1970s, and the focus initially on sort of uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence, and sexual violence. Um, before it sort of uh, became a more general focus on victims of crime. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's Podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Our subject today is victims' rights on the island of Ireland and recently published in Irish Studies and International Affairs, where all Aaron's research is published, is a paper of that name by Anirag Deb, who is a PhD candidate at the School of Law in Queen's University, Belfast. And he will explain to us shortly uh, what his paper does cover and what it doesn't cover. And then coming at things maybe from a somewhat different perspective is Ian Jeffers, who is the Commissioner for Victims and Survivors in Northern Ireland. Uh, he, in fact, has just recently announced that he's moving on to Cooperation Ireland in the new year as its chief executive. But I've no doubt that some of the things we talk about today will remain very relevant to him in the in the future. So maybe we can kick off with you, um, Anurag. Um, what's the sort of basic purpose and, and scope of your paper? Uh, well, Rory, thanks for um, having me on the podcast. The sort of basic premise of the paper is really to look at the uh, sort of legal framework around the provision of uh, rights to victims and the provision of support to victims of crime, both in Northern Ireland and Ireland, and to sort of um, tease out some of the differences, but also look at some of the uh, similarities and, and the sort of convergences in both the evolution of these rights and policies, uh, as well as this sort of harmonizing role that EU law has played. Um, in in both jurisdictions over the years. Yes, thank you very much. And Ian, maybe you could give us a uh, an outline of what the um, Commission for Victims and Survivors does. Yeah, I mean the Commission was established really as part of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. Uh, albeit Northern Ireland being Northern Ireland, it took a number of years after that, after 1998, to come about, uh, and it was specifically set out to advocate. Uh, for victims and survivors of the troubles and the conflict. Uh, you know, again, the complexity of the situation uh, means that we are probably one of the only countries in the world with now two victims commissioners. Uh, we've got a commissioner for victims and survivors of the troubles and we've got a commissioner designate uh, for other victims. Uh, so a complex environment without a doubt. But uh, my role is there to ensure that specifically victims and survivors uh, have voice. And your paper, Anurag, of course, is, um, is, is doesn't concern itself with the uh, with victims of the troubles, as you say. That's a another and 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 you know distinct uh, uh, issue, though there are, of course, uh, overlaps and and similarities. And of course, in the twenty five years since the Good Friday Agreement, unfortunately, lots of uh, other victims of crime have uh, have have emerged, as indeed there were victims of crime, ordinary crime, as it were, during the troubles, as as well. Maybe you say in your paper that this is something which has evolved over the last 20 or 25 years, whether that's a coincidence that to do with the Good Friday Agreement or whether it would have happened anyway is 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 interesting. 
But maybe you could say a bit about, first of all, um, the reasons for greater attention to victims' rights uh, and what the evolution has been in the two jurisdictions. Yeah, so the the sort of beginnings of, of trying to cater for victims, I mean, it, it sort of really began criminal justice in its kind of traditional sense um, looked at victims as a sort of a, a supporting act within within the uh, the primary focus of the criminal justice system being to bring offenders to justice and so the interest of the of the state as prosecutor uh, in both Northern Ireland and Ireland was the kind of preeminent um, point in in criminal justice and things began to change in in the sort of most substantive sense things began to change in the uh, 1990s really I mean in Ireland, especially, um, it came about mainly through the emergence of women's liberation movements in, in the 1970s and the focus initially on sort of, uh, domestic abuse, domestic violence and sexual violence, um, before it sort of, uh, became a more general focus on victims of crime. And in Northern Ireland, the first sort of tentative approaches came about also Roughly in, in, in the same decade, the 1990s, um, in terms of trying to get, uh, best evidence in, in criminal, uh, prosecutions from victims. And the, the focus of both sort of trends, both, uh, in Northern Ireland and Ireland really grew out of a desire to get better quality evidence in criminal prosecutions. It, it wasn't necessarily, you know, a sort of paradigm shift focusing from, the interest of the status prosecutor to the interest of the victim, it, it still largely hinged on what the prosecutor wanted um, and what the courts wanted and needed uh, in, in terms of the quality of evidence. Uh, but this is the sort of evolution. I mean, it the emergence of the Good Friday Agreement really played a very key role in in terms of trying to uh, ground the, the evolution of victims' rights um, in Northern Ireland in particular. In, into a kind of post-conflict human rights oriented framework. Um, but again, the sort of legal, uh, changes and reforms brought about still were more concerned with the quality of evidence generated by victims of crime, um, rather than victims of crime and what their specific needs are within that system, um, until far more recently. Yeah, you do say in the paper that ultimately there are maybe limits to what um, can be done for victims or to take account of the interests of victims in an adversarial legal system such as we have in both jurisdictions. Yeah, and I think in, in terms of the limits, both jurisdictions obviously maintain an adversarial system and the, the starting position in, in both contexts is the fair trial rights of the accused. I mean, the, you know, these are... These are concerns arising out of not just historical um, circumstances, but also, you know, present day circumstances. I mean, you have certain kinds of criminal offenses, uh, particularly I'm thinking of those relating to terrorism that uh, might require the establishment of uh, secret evidence uh, processes or closed courts that really do still raise concerns about fair trial rights of the accused. Um and that seems to be, that remains to this day a sort of central concern, if not necessarily the overriding concern when we are talking about victims' rights, um, given the kind of adversarial 
nature of both jurisdictions. Some of the most potent opposition to kind of wholesale root and branch reform that is victim-oriented tends to come from legal professionals and tends to come from the perspective of the fair trial rights of the accused. So, yes, within that framework, there are limits to what we can what we can achieve um, if we sort of stick to these paradigms. And you talked about the evolution of of rights of the rights the concept of victims' rights in the nineties, but since then, over the last twenty odd years, um, you know, what do you think the main developments have been? We will talk about the EU um, framework uh, later on, but. Other than that, what would you say are the the main practical changes? Well, I think practically speaking, some of the more wide-ranging changes, some of the most impactful changes certainly have been to the way in which evidence is taken. So instead of the kind of traditional uh, orthodox notion of, you know, the, the, the victim as witness or as the victim of the crime has to turn up and physically give evidence and face the accuser in the full sort of public glare of a criminal trial, that has um, been reformed to a considerable extent in both jurisdictions. I mean, you have provisions in, uh, you know, north and south of the border to take evidence uh, by live link, to take pre-recorded evidence. Uh, I mean, in Northern Ireland, you have um, pre-recorded evidence there's still some way to go um, in in Ireland in, in respect of that. But you also have ways to screen victims from the accused, uh, especially relating to sexual offences. You have uh, provisions to keep members of the public out of certain kinds of trials. Um, and it's, it's sort of, th- there's been a greater realisation that you can obtain good quality evidence without necessarily, if you like, traumatising a victim. Um, uh, whether that is through having to face the accused um, all over again, or sort of sitting in, in 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 the glare of a public trial, is that something that defence lawyers, in particular, have have tried to limit or 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 to halt? Yeah. So the um, Gillen review that uh, occurred in Northern Ireland um, after the sort of polarizing Ulster Rugby trial. Uh, and that this was a review into the uh, criminal justice provisions around serious sexual offences trials. Um, some of the um, sort of criticism came from the Northern Ireland Bar in, in terms of an expansion of sort of special measures for taking evidence from victims of serious sexual offences. Um, and a lot of the time, it's 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 a principled, but it is also a practical. Um, Criticism. The, the principle is, of course, justice must be seen to be done, and, and open justice is is a, is the surest guarantee of fairness. But it is also a practical one. I mean, a lot of the objections that came from the bar, for example, related to the ability of uh, defense counsel to cross-examine victims and complainants and, and 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 witnesses who might be vulnerable. But in order to protect the integrity of the criminal justice system, you still need to test the evidence that they're given. So in terms of being able to test that evidence, you also need timely disclosure from from the prosecution. And there's certain problems in, in terms both of the timeliness of prosecution disclosure as well as the volume of prosecution disclosure and the amount of time defense lawyers are given to sort of go through that and and um, formulate their strategy and test the evidence and so on. So 
there are objections both principled and practical and um it's it's a delicate balance to sort of go through that and then just in in layman's terms uh, what would you say are the you know the main points of difference if there are major points of difference between north and south or are they more of a sort of relatively technical nature i think by and large they are more of a relatively technical nature i mean in terms of uh, sort of broad provisions. Both jurisdictions have special measures to account for vulnerable witnesses. Um, the measures are by and large similar. I mean, you know, Northern Ireland has provisions for a kind of an expansive pre-recorded evidence, whereas Ireland doesn't. But those are kind of rare uh, differences. And if we're talking about policies, then again, both jurisdictions alight virtually in the same sorts of policies uh, in terms of, say, the victim charter or in terms of trying to get um, uh, sort of research into the experiences of victims in order to then ground for future reform attempts to, to victims' rights and experiences. Um, and of course, a lot of this has been possible because of the role played by EU law in, in that sort of great kind of harmonizing way that EU law generally functions. Yeah, thank you. And just before I turn to Ian, I mean, obviously from, from the, again, the a layman's perspective, one of the, the highest profile or probably the highest profile um, instance of the exercise of victims' rights comes when um, victims or survivors uh, family members uh, of uh, of of someone who has been the victim of a crime, uh, you know, make pre-sentencing statements. And as we record this in late November, uh, just last week, uh, we saw extraordinarily powerful statements from the the family and 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 boyfriend of Ashley Murphy, who was murdered by Yusuf uh, Puska. Um, and how has that particular element uh, evolved over over time? Well, I think initially, uh, victim impact statements were kind of dealt with in an ad hoc capacity. Um, they weren't particularly systemic at the very beginning when they sort of became used as a, as a sort of tool in, in criminal justice matters. I mean, certainly it's sort of, um, since the mid to late 2000s that it, it's become more systemically, um, used in order to inform sentencing. Um, and that, you know, these days you will have sentencing remarks, uh, including references and in some cases, very detailed references to victim impact statements. Um, I think it's important that the criminal justice system appreciates that these are not kind of performative matters. Um, victim impact statements matter not just to the victim or their family, they also matter in a sort of wider principled sense to preserve the integrity of the criminal justice system. Because at the end of the day, yes, the state has an interest in bringing offenders to justice, but there is a very human reason behind that. There is a victim at the end of that. So it's become more and more systematic, the use of victim impact statements, uh, certainly in, in relation to sentencing. And, but there is some research in a Northern Ireland context that sort of, it is sort of early days and, and we need to move to a uh, sort of wider use of these, these impact statements because they are ultimately important for the integrity of the criminal justice system itself. Yeah, I suppose they can have some sort of cathartic effect perhaps and 
you know, this links maybe to, to what I'll ask Ian about in a, in a second. Um, but at the same time, I suppose, for the most serious crimes, there are fixed minimum penalties. So I suppose the actual length of the sentences you know, may not differ that, mo that much. Maybe it's, it's different with uh, slightly less serious crimes. Yeah, I mean, they're sort of sentencing brackets, I suppose, in 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 respect of quite a few offences. And um, I mean, in Northern Ireland, for example, the Court of Appeal routinely hands down guidance uh, to trial courts uh, in terms of sentencing length. And within that sort of range for each each offence, there are aggravating criteria and mitigating criteria. And Victim impact statements are most relevant, I think, to those criteria where you are as an offender uh, with the sort of offense that you've been convicted of. Is it aggravated by anything? Is it mitigated by anything? And that's really where the victim impact statement comes in, in, in a kind of um, specific practical sense. Um, you know, quite apart from the kind of wider uh, importance to victims. This is really where the victim impact statement comes in. Thank you very much. Well, turning now to Ian, and as is apparent, um, you know, say you you both are interested in or cover somewhat different um, aspects of this question, though I'm sure Ian has recognised a, a lot um, which is relevant to troubles victims in what you've been saying. Ian, an extremely broad question. In your experience, what is it that victims of violence in the Troubles most care about? Or is it possible to say that there is a general view or are there many different perspectives? There are many different perspectives, but there there is, I think, a common theme when you talk to victims and survivors that comes through of knowledge and acknowledgement. Uh, people want to know what happened. The acknowledgement is a harder one because you're dealing with so many different perpetrators and so many different acts, but but the acknowledgement is critical in some ways. And I see that a lot from people that have been harmed by uh, paramilitary organizations. They want an acknowledgement of what happened. Uh, and in some cases, you know, a clear statement of it was wrong. Uh, it's very interesting over the passage of time. And, and obviously we know... Uh, I mean, there's over a thousand unsolved cases, murder cases in Northern Ireland that will likely never, ever be closed or never solved, I should say. Uh, government would, would like them closed, uh, but never solved. But the, the common theme coming through is that knowledge and acknowledgement. And as time has gone on, the quest for justice has maybe eroded, maybe given up on, or maybe people are realistic that justice, given the circumstances, given the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement, the, the legacy bill as it now is, etc., maybe people think, well, I'll never get justice in the classic sense. And it's very interesting that the victim's impact statement side of things there coming through, because that is something that we lobbied hard for, taking it from effectively it's used today in courts and and the 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 power that a victim's in, impact statement can have uh, and as you said the cathartic nature of it all uh, there was no provision in the legacy act as was for victims impact statements so it was all about this is what the perpetrator said 
let's move on. And, and actually what we've lobbied and successfully gained is that there there can be the provision for victims' impact statements within that. So that was one of the critical asks that we had is that you've got to listen to the voice of victims in this, particularly when it comes to historical uh, incidences as we have in the Troubles. Do you find, I mean, I suppose by definition, you mostly come across people for whom either justice or acknowledgement and knowledge are, are, are key. Um, have you any idea, uh, are there many people who simply want to try to forget about it all or or not have these issues addressed? Are they too either too painful or have they moved on with their lives otherwise? I, I think it's important to recognize that probably that's the majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I move on is maybe the wrong no, expression. Sure. I, I it's struggle. A bit, it's a bit flippant. I'm no, sorry. no, not at all. Because I struggle myself to to get a term that uh, sits comfortably with families and survivors and victims and so forth on this. Uh, but I I meet many 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 people that have rebuilt their lives after a particular uh, atrocity and don't want be, to be brought back to it. Uh, Similarly, I meet some people that it's as fresh as the day it happened. It might have happened 30, 40 years ago. And because they haven't had that moment in court, they haven't seen their perpetrator uh, or the perpetrator has been released in an early release program or whatever it may be, uh, they consider it still a battle to be had. Uh, but I, I think this is a point I continue to make. You know, the, the, the troubles impacted thousands on this island, north and south. And majority of people have moved on in some way or other. We do need to find ways that we can acknowledge that. Uh, you know, positives around the, the new Legacy Act as is, is things like memorialization and oral history and so forth uh, that might provide some mechanisms to do that. Uh, but it's still this, you know, it's back to people wanting justice, Government effectively removing justice. I mean, we we talked there. You know, I mean, this is ultimately about you know victims' rights and so forth. Good Friday Agreement did lead to the Human Rights Commission being established in Northern Ireland, which is a positive. Yes. Uh, but really, now what victims are saying with the the ascent of the Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Act, to give it its full title, uh, we're effectively removing those rights now for certain victims, not for for other victims. Again, a very general question. Have you found differences, as it were, between the, you know, the three ma- you know, victims based on the source of the, the crime they they suffered? In other words, whether perpetrated by Republicans or loyalists or by the security forces, or are the human reactions the same in every case? The I'd say the family reactions are very similar. A loss is a loss, uh, and the the pain and the suffering uh, it's impossible to distinguish. Uh, I think the actions are different afterwards, uh, without a doubt. Uh, and I've seen that you know from the point of view of we continue in some respects to weaponize our victims, mm-hmm. uh, and we use those that have maybe lost loved ones as a result of a state action in a different way to those that have lost loved ones as a result of an activity from a terrorist organization. Uh, So it's a very difficult one in respects. And it's also interesting when you consider that, you know, a lot of people, particularly from the security services, from the the army and the police and so forth, would be a lot less vocal. 
Uh, and whether that's an element of personal safety, keeping the head down and so forth is something that is, and it, it's certainly an area we need to discuss uh, because you know, even the definition of victim is contentious in yes. the North. Uh, we had to have an act in 2006 to define who a victim was. Yes. Uh, and that is still not agreed by all of the players today. Uh, you will see if you read any article about victims of the troubles and the conflict, they talk, some will talk about innocent victims, uh, you know, quite clearly stating that, you know, potentially somebody that was a, in a paramilitary organization that was going about whatever they were engaged in is not a victim in the classic sense of the way. So you've got that still, uh, conf not confusion, but concern that uh, innocent victims are different. Uh, and many of the victims groups will, will continue to talk about innocent victims today uh, and think that the state should only be supporting innocent victims. And of course, there was the question of of you know whether there should be payments to to victims back in the in the, in the day, if I can, because I mean, before I leave office, I will publish a paper on the bereaved, which will make recommendations on a payment. Uh, but this is specifically for the bereaved, because uh, again, in the north, there is a scheme called the Victims Payment Scheme, uh, which is for those that were seriously injured as a result of activities in the Troubles. I mean, and it's also referred in other lines as a pension. And it should be looked at as that. These are people that, as a result of an incident, they couldn't hold down or didn't have a normal job, therefore couldn't contribute to workplace pension. And that's taken many, many years to get up and running uh, and is now operational in the North. But it, it really highlights how we badly looked after the bereaved. Uh, Eames Bradley, as you, you rightly say, recommended a £12,000 payment, uh, but it was one of about 27 recommendations that the Eames Bradley report put through. But we ignored the other 26 because uh, people got up in arms about yes. a payment that might go, uh, it would go to thousands of people that warranted it, without a doubt, but it might have gone to one that didn't warrant it in somebody's eyes. Yes. And that's something that we still have to debate. And one other just very general question. I mean, it sometimes strikes me that if you were the victim or a family member were the victim of a or a victim in you know, a really large scale, high profile case where perhaps multiple people were, were, were killed or there has been, for whatever reason, a particular focus very often on a security force act. And then as against that, you know, those who were murdered in a in a back alley or on a field in a field in the border very quickly forgotten about by society at large and you know again do that latter category feel resentment i don't think it's resentment uh, i i mean an interesting way to look at it I, I met somebody that was involved in a significant atrocity that has attracted headlines around the world and so forth uh, and they talked about how their fight for justice had both taken over his life and ruined his life yeah. because he felt he couldn't leave the support groups that were there, that yeah. were lobbying for justice. Similarly, we've got to remember that the majority of victims of the Troubles, North and South, died in isolated incidences. Yeah. There were killings of one or two people, as you say, in a field, in an alley, whatever it may be. Uh, and they've never, in some respects, had that campaigning voice that major atrocities have done or that particular groups have come about. If you, you know, Oma is a good example. Uh, at one point in Oma, there were five victims groups. 
uh, all established, you know, around different reasons, you know, some predominantly around the Oma bomb itself and so forth. Uh, but yet, if you consider the hundreds of people uh, that were involved in that instance, the majority do not engage with the groups. So th there is a challenge in there for us as a society of how we look after victims you know, years after an event that has not been solved, that the answers haven't been provided. Anirag, if I may, um, is it, has there been research on um, what is it that, you know, victims, again, I hate to call it ordinary crime, but, but let's call it that, what they actually want out of the system and are they satisfied with what they're getting and or are there are other groups pushing for, for changes? Because you spoke earlier about some of the limitations, possibly inevitable results or consequences of uh, the current system. Yeah, um, th there is a bit of research. I mean, it's it's sort of recent. There's sort of three um, main kind of points here. Most of the research is carried out, um, if you like, by different state bodies. So in Northern Ireland, um, there's bodies like the Criminal Justice Inspectorate and the inspector does a lot of work in terms of the criminal justice system in general, but also uh, looking at people such as victims who come to come into contact with with the criminal justice system. There's also uh, various surveys carried out um, north and south of the border. And uh, recently with the sort of legal footing granted to the Victims Charter in Northern Ireland and, and in, in Ireland, um, we've seen references to the charter filtering into a lot of these surveys and questions being asked of victims. Um, what it demonstrates is that there isn't really sufficient awareness of the fact that the charter exists and it provides rights to victims. And these rights can be availed of with far less um, effort and kind of bureaucracy and, and headaches than going to the courts. Um, I mean, w one of the one of the key um, uh, reforms, it, and it's procedurally a huge reform in respect of uh, victims' rights, is the right to a reasoned refusal of a decision not to prosecute, um, or a review of a decision not to prosecute. Now, normally, if you were to challenge a refusal to prosecute in the courts, you would find it very difficult to succeed. Um, but through the Victims Charter, it's you don't have to go to the courts at all. You, you have a right to ask for reasons. You have a right to ask for a review. Um, so there is emerging research. Um, I don't think it's nearly as wide enough as it needs to be. Um, and I think partially that is related to sort of two things. Um, one is the space that victims needs and victims' experiences occupy in the sort of political space. And the second one, and th this applies in Northern Ireland specifically, is the question, you know, do we have a government to fund anything um, and to commission any research? Um, and there are times, of course, every political party standing for an election will talk about crime and crime statistics and typically make promises of, of um, harsher sentences and so on. But if there's any rhetoric around the needs of victims, it, it tends to be policy light. Um, 
And a lot of the change, a lot of the reforms are usually driven by uh, kind of commissions of inquiry or uh, reviews that take, um, you know, maybe a few years and, and take evidence from thousands of stakeholders uh, or research specifically commissioned by a statutory body like the Human Rights Commission um, or the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission or the Criminal Justice Inspectorate. But these are kind of, um, you know, long-term reform endeavors that get comparatively limited political space, certainly in terms of the legislative timescale. Um, and when, like in Northern Ireland, you have kind of periodic devolution collapse, and the collapse is pretty lengthy at times, um, when a government does return, it has a huge backlog of legal proposals to get through. And I mean, it, the, in the last executive between 2020 and 2022, the Justice Department moved a lot of bills. The Justice Minister, Naomi Long, moved a lot of bills and implemented a lot of recommendations from the Guild Review. But she had limited time. And it was over the tenure of one Justice Minister. And a lot of the things that she did want to have done legislatively, she didn't have time because the assembly ultimately um, came to a, a, an end. So it's these problems, I think, which kind of exacerbate the uh, comparative lack of research. Uh, the research side is changing, I think, for the better. Um, but obviously, the best research in the world can't remedy um, problems in the political sphere uh, if there's no one there to remedy it. Absolutely. Well, you did mention earlier um, the important impact of EU legislation um, on on victims' rights, uh, both north and south, obviously. Uh, but of course, um, we can't avoid in this, as in virtually anything else, the the spectre of of Brexit. Uh, so, first of all, what in general terms was the impact or has been the impact of of EU law, and secondly. You know what are the the risks posed by by Brexit? And I should say, of course, we we have discussed here in the past the protections offered by the Northern Ireland Protocol for the maintenance of of human rights. But of course, that needs to be tested; hasn't really been tested yet. But uh, would you care to comment comment on that? Yeah. So um, the Victims Directive is the key uh, EU law in this context, and um, it sort of. It, it grew out of, um, you know, you, you might, some people would characterize it as an ingenious uh, move by the EU. Some people would be highly skeptical and, and call it a, an overreach. But it grew out of the um, competence of the European Union over the single market and, and um, the need to ensure sort of smooth cross-border uh, interactions. And victims did come into that fold because, of course, you may have victims of crime on one side of one internal border and, and the perpetrator on the other. And so it grew out of that um, initially as a framework decision and then subsequently the, the victims directed. And there were a great deal of sort of procedural reforms in that directive. So a lot of the, um, a lot of the recent procedural reforms, north and south of the border, um, uh, particularly things like the right to review of a prosecution or of a no prosecution decision, 
uh, came about because of the directive. And so it, it sort of, the whole point of the directive is to try and make the experience of victims easier uh, and, and less sort of bureaucratic or less kind of piecemeal. Um, instead of being passed from pillar to post, you have uh, as, as many uh, opportunities as possible in, in, in one sort of uh, regulated space. And so that has been uh, a, a greatly influential uh, thing. Brexit, yes. I mean, a lot of this discussion goes back to um, discussions you've had previously. Um, and, and I'm thinking in particular of, of um, Aoife Donahue and Catherine McNeely, um, who recorded an episode in July, I think. And um, their research into the kind of uh, the tapestry, I think they called it, of human rights, um, uh, North and South. And the protections offered by the protocol are yet to be tested to its fullest extent. I mean, um, currently, and and uh, maybe Ian can um, come in on this, currently there's a, a, a raft of challenges to the Legacy Act, um, partly grounded on some of the protections offered by the protocol. Um, and it's a, it's a complex provision, and it's, a, it's, it's being tested slowly. Um, you know, I, I myself am involved in, in various uh, research projects dealing with aspects of, of these protections and how they apply and how they should apply. And the only thing we can say for sure is that it is complex and it is frequently changing. Um, and the courts really do have their work cut out for them uh, in, in terms of trying to make sense of overlapping, confusing um, sort of tangles of, of statutory provisions. But it is an exciting uh, field, nevertheless, that um, north and south of the border, there is a uh, sort of floor, a, a, a minimum baseline of rights to be protected via the protocol. Ian, can't, I suppose, um, finish this conversation without talking about the Legacy um, Act. Uh, you made some very strong statements, or have made some very strong statements as the um, Commissioner for Victims and, and Survivors. Uh, as we record this, as, as Anurag suggested, a number of people have indicated their intention uh, to bring cases uh, ultimately um, through the, the courts to, uh, to Strasbourg. And there is this question over whether the Irish government will or will not take a state case uh, against the British government um, as it did in the in the 70s um, over the, the case of the so-called hooded men. Um, in broad brush terms, I mean, first of all, uh, do you, do you and others still feel as as strongly about the Legacy Act as you did when it was first proposed and was going through Parliament? Secondly, um, you know where you mentioned earlier, you know the the need to for the voice of victims to be heard and how that was taken on board. Um, and thirdly, I mean the the mechanisms in it. What chance do you think they have of actually um, working? Big questions, I know. <laughs> But maybe, as I say, as you're leaving your your job soon, uh, maybe you can uh, you can you can talk about it. Speak with a little bit more freedom, maybe. Yes. Uh, 
Do I still think it's a bad act? Yes. Uh, does everybody else? Yes. But I think it's important, you know, it, it's for very different reasons. I think people are opposed to the act. Uh, you've got one side saying it's you know, an opportunity for state cover-up, another saying it's a way to let terrorists off with what they did, and then the, the middle ground where people will say both. Uh we are in the middle of legal cases now. Uh, I think originally there was about 20 lodged. The judge hearing it uh, reduced that or combined them, I think, to sort of three or four sort of substantive areas. Uh, the Equality Commission has joined one of those specifically around protocol issues. Uh, time will tell. Uh, it's early days on that. I still believe it is wrong that we put victims into court to challenge a law. Uh, that is, in my way, unforgivable. And even if those victims have the support of an organization behind them that is maybe you know helping them through the process, I, think, I still think it's wrong that we are seeing victims from atrocities of 40, 50 years ago now standing on the court steps fighting for what they see as, as justice on Dahl. Uh, Kieran McAvoy, you know, wrote an interesting piece in the Irish Times recently talking about uh, the reasoning why an interstate case would be helpful at this point in time. And, and I think he's quite right in so much that it, it's an opportunity for the two countries to get around the table and, and talk about it as opposed to putting victims into the middle of it all. Uh, but inevitably, with the process being what it is, it's going to be probably a twin twin track process. Whether we ever see the, the government, the Irish government, take that interstate case is you know questionable they've had the advice now uh they have to decide relatively soon uh i think it's one way that we could potentially see improvements i think we have to be realists so we had a have a conservative government in the uk that pushed this bill through for its own reasons uh, it wasn't for the reasons of reconciliation. That's complete nonsense. And it certainly wasn't for the reasons of giving victims better uh, opportunities or, or, or better sight of justice, if you like. Uh, it was for their own reasons. But with a conservative majority in the Commons, it was going to happen. Uh, Labour government have said that they, originally they had said they would repeal the bill. Uh, but it's fairly clear talking to the, the new shadow secretary of state, Hillary Benn and others, that that would not necessarily be their straightforward way to do it because by the time, if indeed we saw a change of government in the UK, uh, the commission that has been established, the ICRIR, the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery, would be up and running. The other mechanisms that you know, victims and survivors have had at their disposal, whether that's inquests or the historical inquiries from police ombudsmen and so forth, would have gone. Uh, so simply to repeal the bill at that stage, you know, we're, we're sort of almost making it a worse situation. Uh, the cynic in me says maybe that's what the government thought. Well, well, we'll push this through even if we're not in power. It's done. We've delivered our election manifesto pledge, which was to stop prosecutions of veterans. Uh, and, you know, I still take great, uh, well, I think Boris Johnson should have great shame to talk about vexious prosecutions. Uh, we never saw a vexious prosecution, to my knowledge. I don't think we ever would. The court system makes sure of that in many respects. But we are where we are now with it. Can it work? Time will tell. I've met Sir Declan Morgan now on many occasions. Uh, the commission, while we have objected to the bill, have also been 
I was pragmatic to say, well, if, if government's going to force this through, let's try and get the victim's voice into it. So the, the ICRIR has met on a number of occasions with my forum, which are victims, uh, with lived experience. So, you know, they've been able to give uh, some significant input to that. Uh, it's very early days to see how this shapes up. Uh, we see, you know, we'll hear in the next few weeks about commissioners being appointed. You'll start to see the machinery start to come into to action. Uh, I have heard from victims and survivors right across uh, the piece that they would probably engage. Mm. Some will, will want to engage to test it and challenge it. Mm. Some will engage because they still want to find out the truth. Uh, your best example I have is one individual whose father was shot in the Falls Road in the 70s and they want to know was my dad targeted and it's the only information they want they know they'll never bring the killer to justice a loyalist group uh, they have a fair idea who it was from what has been told and historical inquiries etc etc but that's what they want to know and they will engage to find out can they find out more information Will it resolve the issue overall? No, it's not going to. And I think even the title legacy reconciliation bill is a misnomer. We should not put reconciliation in it. Reconciliation is not to be decided or cannot be decided by a, a, an act. Uh, that is something that has to come together with you know, all our political parties, north and south, the communities, north and south. And we've got to talk about reconciliation in a much broader way. You can't hope that you've said, which the Conservatives are hoping to do in this case, you say, well, we've solved that one. Northern Ireland closed. Forget about it now. Yeah, the point you make is interesting that um, even if a case in Strasbourg were to succeed, you know, whether an interstate case or, uh, which would probably be heard faster, um, than, than those from uh, individuals uh, that, as you say, the the various processes which w well might be underway or have been underway would have been cut off. And so I suppose to to resurrect them, um, even if the judgment went as a rather right way, would be would be would be difficult. Um, yeah, I think Sir Declan Morgan will be very careful as well. He's not going to rush into granting immunity or anything like that. Mm. I mean, he he, uh, he strikes me as a, as a as a shrewd individual that wants to do the right thing for victims and survivors. And I think that's where you can look to a degree of hope. If you look at, say, the work that John Boucher has done with victims and survivors in Operation Canova uh, to gain the trust of those families and to try and give them information. And many have talked about they've, they've got information as a result of Canova that they would have never had or had never seen to this point in time. And they're comforted by that without a doubt. Uh, and some will say, well, if you can replicate that, you might be able to provide answers. So I, I think certainly, you know, Sir Declan Morgan will be very careful that they don't step outside of the law at this point. He has said from day one, from the moment he was appointed, he will always operate within the law. And indeed he said, and you know, I have chastised him slightly on this, you know, oh, the courts will decide. I still don't think the court should decide whether a bill is right or wrong. The government should have done that in the first place, but that didn't work. I'm going to, at the end of this conversation, um, shortly I'll ask Anurag if he's any final thoughts or, or points to make. But Ian, just briefly, as I mentioned before, you are taking over as a CEO of Corporation Ireland. Um, big shoes to fill in, in those of Peter Sheridan. But from this particular perspective, um, can you say a little bit about you know what Corporation Ireland you know has done, is doing, might do in in the field of uh, of victims? 
Well, first off, it's ironic that uh, you know Peter Sheridan has moved now to become the Chief Commissioner for Investigations under the ICRIR. Uh, I didn't think in my working career I would see the opportunity to join Corporation Ireland. I'll be quite honest, my background, I, I, you know, I spent prior to coming into the Commission many years uh, with young people. Prince's Trust. Uh, with the Prince's Trust, working with disadvantaged young people. So I, I know firsthand what can be done. Uh, I'm a firm believer, and I've said it in my role as commissioner, is that our solution here is to look at this through the eyes of our victims and our young people uh, and to look at the next generation coming through. Corporation Ireland is unique. Uh, you know, the, the commission is, in some respects, it, it's there to advise government to see that things are being done, but it doesn't do anything in, in the nicest possible way. Uh, Corporation Ireland can do stuff. It can do things, and you know this, this came from somebody senior in government when I said last week that I was moving to this role. They said, that's fantastic, Ian, because you can do stuff government can't do. And you can do it quietly behind the doors and get it done. And whether that's engagement with communities that don't want to engage or groups that don't want to engage or feel they can't engage, if I can in some way play a role and support the team of Corporation Ireland to continue those conversations, uh, you know, our solution and what is right for victims of all crime, whether it's terrorist or not, is that we're continuing to look for ways forward on all of these things. So from my point of view, uh, you know, in some ways, the opportunity to join Corporation Ireland is too good to miss up because there's an opportunity to influence and actually do some things. Uh, I am slightly, uh, I, I suppose, frustrated at having to leave the Commission at this stage because the Commission is, is doing some very good work. Uh, but I also think you have to look at where you can have the greatest impact on these things. Uh, one thing that I will take with me, though, is that if we can look at this through the eyes of our victims and be victim-centred, on everything we do, we find much better solutions. Well, in life, um, you often can't control the the timing or the nature of opportunities which present themselves. So, so finally, then, Anurag, are there points which you haven't made, which you'd like to have made, or or anything you'd like to say uh, in wrapping up? I think the the sort of most um, important thing from the perspective of victims' rights that I certainly um, discovered when doing the research for this paper and writing this paper is that um, there needs to be um, a lot more kind of holistic engagement between different aspects of, because so far, victims' rights evolve in a kind of piecemeal approach, um, whether we're talking about civic society organizations um, that lobbied very hard or... Um, the interests of good quality evidence driving legislative reform, um, or you know, polarizing criminal trials that lead to ad hoc reviews of systems, or political priorities brought about by by some sort of high profile crime. It's sort of ad hoc, and we need to have a much more structured um, systemic view of the needs of victims because at the end of the day. They form a key part of the criminal justice system, but they are also key to ensuring um, public trust and confidence within within that system. Um, and while there, there's sort of an approach that is starting to happen um, with kind of longer term strategies and, and uh, based on on more holistic research, there needs to be more of that. There needs to be more sustained. Um, 
more considered approach. And it, the sort of political space needs to be not as sort of policy light and rhetoric heavy because it's, it's ultimately kind of meaningless. Um, and the reform initiatives kind of stagnate, really. We need to, we need to be much more aware and, as Ian said, a lot more victim centered, uh, and, and, and victim focused, uh, and, and truly listen to, to what victims are saying. Well, thank you both very much indeed. And, and before I finish, I should just say that, uh, Anurag's paper, um, is one in a, a series of articles which Aaron's either has published or will be publishing, comparing different aspects of the law and, and of legal systems north and south. He referred to the paper by Aoife O'Donoghue and Catherine McNeely, um, and who did the podcast with me in, in July, as he as he rightly said. Uh, and we look forward to, to more. Um, but look, it's been a really interesting discussion. And I, as I hoped, there's been, I think, a lot of interesting commonality uh, between what you've both had to say coming from different perspectives. It sounds as if you both have, you know, serious agendas uh, ahead, uh, more to do. So, Ian uh, and Anurag, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Aaron's stands for Analyzing and Researching Ireland, North and South. It's a joint initiative of the Royal Irish Academy, which is the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the University of Notre Dame's Kyo Nocton Institute of Irish Studies, which is itself part of the Kyo School of Global Affairs. It was established in 2020 with the objective, especially at that time in a post-Brexit context, of producing authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research across the full range of relevant constitutional, institutional and social issues. And in fact, over the last couple of years, uh, we've covered uh, a quite remarkable range of subjects. And the research can be found in the Journal of Irish Studies in International Affairs, which is published by the Royal Irish Academy, and access to which is free to all online. Uh, the aim is to be scholarly, uh, but also accessible and relevant. Publications began to appear in early 2021, um, and this podcast also began uh, in 2021 in June. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast you just listened to, and I also hope that you will find others uh, of interest um, on our website, which is aaronsproject.com, and also that you listen out for future podcasts, which are normally dropped on the first Thursday of every month. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>